Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. So today we are continuing our series called The Meaning of Sight. This message is entitled Blinded by the Light. We are looking at the story of the Apostle Paul's conversion and why it is that, that Paul would later go on to write more about unity in the church than any other writer in the New Testament how it was directly tied to his experience with Christ on the road to Damascus. In a couple of weeks, we've got a church picnic coming up at the Bogafalaya. Uh, that will be our Sunday service at the end of the month, so come out and join us. Find out more info on our Facebook page or at northshorevenue.org. series this past month called The Meaning of Sight. I'm actually writing a book right now by that title, and so maybe here in another year or something it'll, it'll be done. Um, but this series is really about understanding how we see. Seeing is something that we take for granted. I'm not taking it for granted as, as much the older that I get, but seeing is a very complex process, and there's a lot of things that go into seeing. Because really, as I said the first week of, of this uh, series, seeing is an act of interpretation. You learn through your experiences in life uh, how to interpret the things around you so you can navigate the world. And a lot of that may be very neutral. But oftentimes, very simple words like father, mother, tolerance, security, these words may have very simple definitions in the dictionary, but when it comes to our own personal definitions, they may be very complicated. So we can find that, that, that the assumptions that we carry around with us and the way that we relate to the world is often uh, based on definitions that came out of maybe difficulty, maybe out of abuse, maybe uh, really rough circumstances. And they, they change the way that we see and we interpret the world around us. So this series is a, is a way of understanding how we see, how we can learn to see better, more clearly, with more depth, with more breadth, but also the things that blind us. So two weeks ago, I, I talked about probably one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, but the least practiced. And that is, before you set about to take care of the speck in your neighbor's eye, deal with that plank in your own eye. What was Jesus saying? He's saying, before you try to change the world, before you try to change other people or your spouse, change yourself. You experience that on the inside. Why? Because it's not that... God doesn't want us to help people with their specs. He does. But if you do the hard work of dealing with your own stuff, the chaos, the turmoil, the hurts in your own soul, if you do the hard work of going through that process, you are not going to be so quick to judge other people because you realize just how difficult it is. And so when you go to remedy the speck in other people's eye, now you can truly see, but you also have compassion and empathy. 
The cure to judgmentalism is dealing with our own sin. As, as I heard somebody say a couple of years ago, the, the church has been pretty famous for a saying, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. But a, a better way to, to talk about it is love the sinner and hate your own sin. Try that first. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> Shout me down now. Um, and then last week I talked about another way that we go blind, and that is through idolatry. And we can think that we are, as human beings, we've evolved beyond idolatry because, after all, who these days actually goes and puts sacrifices in front of a statue and worships that? We've, we've evolved beyond that. No, we still have idolatry, and idolatry happens when we objectify God. We cobble together a, a bunch of beliefs about God that are based on our own biases, and we project them on God. But here is the real problem with idolatry. There's no surrender. There's no trust. So we want God for what God can do for us, but we don't really want to trust and surrender our lives to the loving care of God. And I mentioned last week how that is core to, to recovery. If you look in recovery, it says in the third step, we uh, turned our lives over to the care of God, our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. And the invitation of the Holy Spirit is, how can all of us turn our lives over to God as we understand God? Because we take a step from idolatry into actual relationship. As, as the psalmist said in Psalm 115, said, those who make idols and worship them will be like their idols they worship. They will have eyes but not be able to see, ears but not being able to hear. We are blinded when we objectify God. We're blinded. We lose our sensitivity. We lose the life that Jesus came that we can have. So today, I want to talk about one of the most famous Christians that has ever lived next to Jesus. I don't know if Jesus was a Christian. I guess Jesus wasn't a Christian. But the second most influential person in Christianity next to Jesus would be the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul's story is a story of, of a person who could see, but he, he was seeing in a very egocentric, tribal-centric way until he encountered Christ. And he was blinded by the light of Christ. And when he regained his sight, he would never see the same way again. So, this morning, I want to talk about Saul, which was Paul's name in his former life. And I'm probably going to mess this up trying to go back and forth between Saul and Paul, but they're, they're the same person, okay? So, in the book of Acts... One of the first things that the early church did, I, I, I love this picture because I, I grew up in, in very kind of charismatic Pentecostal uh, expressions of Christianity, and we would hear about Acts chapter 2 all the time. In the, in the last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my serv your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit, says the Lord. And I, I remember, you know, almost every Sunday we would hear that passage, and we would celebrate Pentecost, you know, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But most of the focus and the Pentecostal and Charismatic denominations was on the gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophecy, things like that. 
What I find quite interesting when you look at Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, what really interests me is the fruit of the Spirit. What did people start doing? They start taking care of each other. They start sharing their possessions, selling their land, you know, doing anything they can to help one another. But they also started helping the community outside the church. So in the first year of the church, many Bible scholars believe that the church went from being about the size of North Shore Vineyard to being over 20,000 people. And they didn't have workshops on how to do church back then. So they're figuring it out. The, the apostles who had been the disciples of Jesus Christ uh, in his earthly ministry, they're trying to run this crazy thing. I can't even imagine what that would be like to go from this to 3,000 people on the first day of church to 20,000 people a year later. I don't, I don't have any desire to do that. <laughs> but they're trying to figure it out. And, and, and so they start this ministry in Jerusalem to help the most marginalized members in society, which happened to be widows. Now, back at that time, if you were a widow, it wasn't just a, a matter of you lost your husband. That time in the world, women didn't have options. They couldn't just go get an education or just go get a job. If you didn't have family members to take you in, you would be homeless, uh, destitute, and, and your only options would be options that you didn't want to, to, to take up. And so the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, they began reaching out to their community and feeding the most vulnerable members of society. That, that was the, one of the first outreaches that the church did. And so they're feeding people all the time. But at some point, the apostles can't, can't manage these thousands of people and a feeding program, so they appoint some people to be over this. And one of them was a guy by the name of Stephen. And I'm covering a whole lot of scripture today. If I actually read it all out, we'd be here for about three hours. And I figure... Uh, Y'all would probably like to get out of here uh, in, in a timely fashion. But Stephen was one of the guys who was heading up the ministry to the widows in the community. And it is interesting. I've, I've noticed this time and time again throughout history, how often people who don't even espouse violence, who are all about compassion and helping people, how often they are seen as a threat to the establishment. Even though they, you, you would think, how could they be a threat at all? How could Stephen be a threat to anything? He's just taking care of people that nobody else is taking care of. And yet, he begins to be persecuted by some of the religious establishment there in Jerusalem. And they argue with Stephen time after time, but he has a wisdom that is from another place. And so finally, when arguing with him and trying to uh, defeat him on, you know, theological grounds doesn't work. They just come up with false charges against Stephen. They say that he's blasphemed God, blasphemed Moses, blasphemed the temple in Jerusalem, and they bring him up in front of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of a religious tribunal. He's on trial. And in his trial, he makes a statement. He begins speaking of, of Israel's history, going all the way back to the time of Moses, and, and he recounts all the times that God was moving and how many times the very people of God stood against what God was actually doing. And he kind of closes his argument by saying, you know, whoops. He closes his argument by saying, you know, every, every prophet that God has raised up has been killed by the religious people. Not by the heathens, not by the Gentiles. It's been by the religious people. And he said, this is exactly what you guys did 
to Jesus. When God even sent his only son, you killed him. Well, this is not the type of message. It's not a Joel Osteen kind of message. (laughs) They didn't respond well to it. In fact, they grabbed Stephen. They dragged him outside the gates of the city. And they're about to stone him. And the guys who were going to stone him, it says that they took off their cloaks. I think this is something like rolling up your sleeves if you're about to be in a fight. They took off their outer cloaks and they laid him at the feet of a guy named Saul of Tarsus. And they began lunging rocks at Stephen, one after the other. And Stephen, even as he's getting stoned to death by an angry mob, What is his response? He says, Father, don't hold this sin against them. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he was executed right there on the spot. So fast forward a few more chapters in Acts. We see... That right after this event with Stephen, the persecution against Christians in Jerusalem ramps up so much that most of the Christians leave the city, except for the apostles. And they're hiding out in Judea and Samaria because they know they could be locked up in prison or even executed. It's a scary time to be a follower of Jesus. And Saul is on a war path. He's one of the leaders of the Pharisees who had presided over the public execution of Stephen that day and how he's got letters from the Sanhedrin that he can go and lock up any followers of Jesus that he can find. And so he's on the road to Damascus when he bumps into Jesus Christ himself. It says that a light shone and blinded him, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against these goads. And and Saul cries out, who are you? And Jesus says, it's me, Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, a goad is is kind of a first century century equivalent of a cattle prod. It's just a, a sharp wooden stick. And I believe this statement that Jesus makes to Paul about kicking against the goads, I suspect what that actually meant was how Paul was plagued with the face of Stephen in his mind. How that memory of seeing this young man who had devoted his life to compassion and forgave people even as they were stoning to death, I think it haunted Saul from that point on. It was haunting his conscience. It's one thing to fight somebody that is being ugly back to you, right? It's one thing when somebody reflects your own contempt and hatred and anger back to you. That makes it easier, right? But when somebody has just been living a life of love and compassion and care, and even when you go after them, they don't put up a fight, but they actually pray for you, I think it haunted Paul. And Jesus says to Saul that day, he says, I want you to go into this town, and there's going to be a guy named Ananias who will pray for you. So Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision and says, Ananias, there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, you need to pray for him. And Ananias was like, are you crazy? He's a terrorist. 
But he's like, okay, if you, if you want me to do this, God, I will. And so Ananias comes to the place in Damascus where Saul was staying. He lays his hands upon Saul and he prays for Saul. And all of a sudden it said something like scales fell from his eyes. He's gone from seeing to being blinded by the light of Christ to now seeing again. Now immediately Paul, I'm going to call him Paul now. (laughs) Immediately Paul goes out there. And starts trying to preach. But nobody wants to have men. He even goes and talks to the, to the apostles and stuff. And they all think it's a trick. Oh, yeah, Paul, you want to have a revival and get all the Christians there. They're like, oh, yeah, we know what you're going to do. And so Paul gives up on preaching initially and actually takes about 14 or 15 years to just go to church and be formed by Christ, which is, which is an important thing. But what has struck me over the years as I consider the apostle Paul... When I consider his writings, there is one theme that I see popping up in almost everything Paul wrote in the New Testament, and that, that is written around the idea that the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Where did Paul get that idea? He got it the first time that he met Jesus. Why do you persecute me? Was Saul persecuting Jesus? No, he was persecuting Christians. But in Jesus' mind, the way Jesus saw it, if you're trying to stand against the very people of God, you are actually standing against God. That is my body. In Galatians and Colossians, Paul makes a similar statement He says, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. What is Paul saying there? He says, in the world that we live in, we are all divided by race and class and gender and and place in society. In the world that we work in, that's the way the world goes. But he says, not so within the church. We are all part of the body of Christ. And this this issue is so central to the theology of Paul that you find it popping up in every just pretty much every epistle that he wrote in some form or fashion. David Foster Wallace, the author, once wrote, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Truth will set you free, but not till it's finished with you. And I would say, looking at the life of Paul, I'd say, the truth will make you see, but not before it's blinded you first. On the front of your bulletin is a scripture from Romans 12, 3 through 8. Paul, Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 12, but much longer. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather... Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. 
We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. I'm going to pass that offering around again. (laughs) If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. See, Paul is talking about the body of Christ here. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he uses the same analogy, but he, he uses a lot more words to do it. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, you know, if, think, of it, think of a body. If, if an eyeball was like to get all cocky and go, I can see everything. I think the whole body ought to be an eye. Paul is saying, well, if the whole body was an eye, it wouldn't be a body, right? It'd be Mike Wazowski from Monsters Incorporated. If you haven't watched the movie, Mike Wazowski's this monster that's mainly an eyeball with a mouth and, you know, a couple little arms and legs. And what Paul is getting at is oftentimes by our very place in the body of Christ, our giftings, our callings, the things that, that really matter to us, oftentimes we make the mistake of either overemphasizing our place in the body or underemphasizing it. We see it as competing with other parts of the body, other people who have a different place and different points of view and different giftings. We see it as a competitive thing. And Paul says, that's not the way it is. The eye needs the hand. The hand needs the eye. They both need the feet. And Paul even makes a statement in in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, you know, the parts of you that you keep hidden are some of the most important parts to you, right? Can I get an amen? Because he says the other problem is not overemphasizing our part of the body, but underemphasizing it. I'm doing this, this hidden thing that nobody sees. I'm not up front. I'm not talking to people. I can't lead worship like faith. I can't, you know, do so many of the things that, so I'm just insignificant. No, Paul says, no, you're a part of the body of Christ. You have your own unique calling and gift. See, the beauty of the body of Christ is not that we're all the same and we're all trying to be squeezed into a mold and and just act alike and talk alike and think alike. There's a unity in our diversity. We all find the place in the body that we're called to do. And Paul is saying, whatever you're called to do, you do that. And you do it with all your heart because... If you do that with all your heart, the whole body benefits. If you read, we did a, I did a class here a few years ago on how to read the Bible. And in that class, we studied the book of 1 Corinthians. And it is amazing when you read 1 Corinthians. I'd read bits and pieces of 1 Corinthians for years, and there's all kinds of quotable scriptures that you've heard. But it's amazing when you read the book, if you just sit down this week sometime and take... 20 minutes to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, there is one theme that pops up over and over. And that was that in the church of Corinth, people were dividing over all kinds of things. They were dividing over who was the best speaker, 
Some people were saying, we like to listen to Peter because he's the rock, man. And then some people were like, no, forget Peter. We're listening to Paul. I mean, he had that Damascus Road thing. And then some people are like, forget those guys. We're listening to Apollos, man. He's an evangelist. He can preach it down. And then other people were like, yeah, well, we're only listening to Jesus, man. (laughs) And Paul says, you know, some people plant, some people water, but it's God that gives the increase. It doesn't matter who you like. Don't divide with other people because you like Joel Osteen and somebody else likes another pastor. Because there's one pastor that you need to like. And he's right up here on stage. No. <laughs> uh, then Paul goes on to talk about spiritual gifts. In the church, what they were noticing was, man, the church in Corinth, man, they were fascinated by spiritual gifts. They, they were totally into that. But the problem was some people who were speaking in tongues or prophesying, they were wearing that as a badge of spirituality. I encountered that occasionally in my journey. You know, and they were dividing. And, and Paul has to make the statement that the spiritual gifts, for the most part, are actually meant to help the church, not to carve the church up into people, uh, pieces, or people. <laughs> and then Paul gets to other issues along the way. All the different ways that people in the church seem to be dividing with one another And it leads up to probably one of the most famous, beautiful pictures that Paul has ever come up with, which is 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains but do not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship so that I may boast, but do not love, I gain nothing. Now, if anybody has been to a wedding that I've officiated, I often bring this. I I think it's such a beautiful picture, and it's a helpful one in marriage. But honestly, I'm not being a great pastor because I'm taking it very much out of context. Because Paul is actually, this is the high point of the argument that he's been making about the divisions in the church throughout 1 Corinthians. It's been leading to this point. And Paul kind of says, you know, in, in, in modern terms, this would be kind of what Paul is saying. You can do social justice. You can be taking care of the poor and the homeless in your community and the marginalized. You can be doing that. But if you do that without love, it's doing nothing. You can be somebody who is charismatic and Pentecostal and all about speaking in tongues and prophecy, but if there's no love in your life, you're just making noise. You can be a person who even becomes a martyr because of your faith, but if there's no love in your life, it profits you nothing. He goes on to say this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Have you ever noticed that when a child hits about the toddler phase, one of their favorite words is mine? And no. Maybe no is not their favorite word, but it's, it's the one they're familiar with. But a two-year-old has zero empathy, right? They don't care about the enjoyment of other people. They don't care that their friends could enjoy that playing with that doll or those blocks. Like, they, they just don't care. It's all about them. And we expect that of two-year-olds, right? But there's some people who are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old who are still living in a world with that, you know, they're so egocentric. And Paul is saying, hey, when I was a child, I acted like a child. I was selfish. I didn't care about anybody else. I was focused on what I want. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. What Paul is saying, all this division on this stuff, that's childishness. That's eighth grade. That's junior high. (laughs) Cafeteria. This dividing into little clubs based on all these little things that we prize. That, it's immature. There's a better way. Because all that stuff is going to fade away. But Paul says there's one thing that's not going to fade away, and that is love. Last week, I mentioned one of my favorite C.S. Lewis books was Screwtape Letters. But there's another book that I probably like even more than that by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And, and uh, it's not about divorce. It's about hell and heaven. And, and C.S. Lewis imagines hell as this endless subdivision. Stretching out over the horizon, houses everywhere, and most of them are vacant because the people in hell can't get along, and they keep moving further and further away from one another. C.S. Lewis imagines that, that heaven and hell are really just a part of the trajectory you've been on in this life. So if you have been a person that has never dealt with the resentments in your life, and you're too proud to accept the help of other people, and you got contempt and all this stuff, then guess what? You're going to just keep continuing on that trajectory in the afterlife. And the way C.S. Lewis saw it is that the people in hell become less and less and less human. He says they become like ghosts walking on the earth. Now, in this work of, of Lewis, he, he actually, he has this, there's this flying bus that will come to hell, and it'll take people to the outskirts of heaven. And so he gets on this bus, and the bus is filled with all these people from hell, and they fly up to the outskirts of heaven, and the people from hell, when they get out, they're, they're so light and so lacking in any substance, even walking on the grass hurts their feet. But he said... People from heaven walk out from heaven, and they come out there to greet the people who are visiting from hell. And he says, the people from heaven are substantial. They're weighty. You can feel their presence. And I believe that's based on exactly what Paul says. Love is the only thing that lasts. It's substantial. It actually makes you more real. Makes you more what God intended you to be. You know, I I, uh, I had an encounter with God a while back, and and it was, I really felt like I encountered Christ in hell. And what, what, what that hell was, was nothingness. It was nihilism. 
There was nothing to it. And that was the point. The people who love are formed, weighty, solid people. I mean, think about the most loving people that you know. I can. I can think about people who truly love, and th- these are solid people. They're not, they're not, you know, this way and that way. They're solid people because they've been formed by that love. Paul says you can, you can keep playing this game of dividing the world into all this stuff. You can play that game, or you can go the way of love. And the way of love will make you more human more substantial, more weighty in a good way. I don't want to put on weight, but I'll put that on. We're going we're gonna to close this morning. I, I, I want to read one, one passage before we come to the table. One other aspect that Paul covers in 1 Corinthians 11 He says, in the following, in in verse 17, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. That's that's not what you want to hear from the guy that started your church. Like, when y'all get together, it's actually hurting people more than if y'all just stayed at home. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? The problem is that in the early church in in Corinth, they didn't have church buildings. They met in homes. And the biggest homes were those of the rich people in their community. So all the rich people would show up to church. They'd eat all the food and drink all the wine. And then the the poor folks that were working all day, they would show up at the church and, oh, we can't have communion because they (laughs) drank all the wine and ate all the food. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why so many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to over the years that were scared to death to take communion when they grew up. Because this is the way communion was put. Before you come to this table, you confess every sin that you can think of. Because you don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner and and be, be cursed or made sick. I know a lot of people that are like, 
I'm just going to leave before y'all do that. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says the problem is we come to this table, but we don't rightly discern the body. What is the body of Christ? It's us. It's us, people. Everything that Paul has been saying in 1 Corinthians is leading up to this point. All the, all the stuff about division, it has to do with the body of Christ. You don't discern the fact that you are in relationship with other people. He says that why, that's why so many people are sick. And they prove this with science these days. You know, relational issues, relational problems, it causes physical problems. If you've got resentment and bitterness in your heart uh, because of stuff that's between you and other people, it will take you down physically. So, so taking of communion in a worthy manner is realizing that I am connected to other people and I need to walk through things and, 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 and make sure I'm, I'm rightly related to the people in the body of Christ. That's the real issue. Yeah, some of you'd rather just confess sins privately than, than do that. I know I would a lot of times. Paul's seeing, and hear this, and I'm going to close. The change of Paul's sight after he was blinded by the light of Christ, how was he healed? How was he healed? How was his sight restored again? He had to humble himself. And actually have one of the people from the body of Christ lay their hands on him and pray for him. That's when his sight was restored. And I think that is one reason that Paul keeps hammering on this thing over and over since the beginning. Because he's realized the body of Christ is the people of God. And how we relate to one another. How we care for our relationships is central to that. Because our healing your healing and my healing, it's tied up in that. Isn't it interesting? When Paul encounters Jesus, Jesus blinds him. Jesus doesn't heal him. His healing will come in the body. The same way your healing and my healing will come. It's part of it. And so my, you know, I want to charge you today that, that we're going to come to the table and we're going to take communion but I want you to reflect. As you come to this table today, you may have an offense in your heart against somebody else. You may have bitterness. You may have something you just need to talk about. Maybe you need prayer. And maybe the prayer you need is not just the personal prayer like, God, please help me to be a better person. Maybe you actually need to find a trusted brother and sister here in the body of Christ today to pray for you. You've got to humble yourself. Confess your sin. Whatever you feel the invitation of the Spirit to you is today. Do that. Because this meal that we take, it represents what God has done in us and through us. It represents the hope of the very world. So we come to this table today, the body of Christ broken, that we would be whole and that we could participate in God's wholeness going forth in us and through us. Come on up, Faith. And Faith is going to uh, lead us in a worship song and I want to invite our communion servers down here, and we will close with this.